You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. That's also what I've tried to understand in looking at affairs. I mean, I've never had one myself, so <laughs> I have to read about them and do some research. And the chance that people take where a, you know, a sultry glance can become a stolen kiss or a salacious aside can tip into a full-blown affair because there was a chance, a rare chance at excitement and intimacy. Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto. In this episode, Elizabeth McCarthy speaks with award-winning journalist Kate Legg, exploring the complex topic of infidelity. Hey everyone, thanks so much for coming today for this conversation with Kate Legg and myself. My name's Elizabeth McCarthy and it's a pleasure to be here at Montalto. Thank you so much to Angela and Heidi and the whole Montalto team for making these events so wonderful and to Jamila and the Wheeler Centre crew for collaborating with Montalto and, um, and bringing these events to life. It's wonderful to be here with Kate Legg today and um, I also wanted to acknowledge that we're on the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and pay respects to Elders past and present on this Aboriginal land. We're going to start off today, um, I guess Kate would like to also say hello to everyone. Yes, (laughs) thank you for coming everybody. It's wonderful to see you here today and it's just such a beautiful day. And uh, thank you for those of you who've read the book and thank you for buying the book and thank you for coming to listen to me speak, you know, because it's um, it's the psychic capital that you get as a writer from mixing with readers that's so important to the work, you know, we try and do. So thank you. And so we're going to start off um, with Kate doing a reading from the book. Um, for those of you who haven't read it yet, this will give you a little bit of an insight into, uh, I guess, the material of the book, if the title itself isn't enough of a giveaway. Well, of course, this is only only the first third of the book that deals with infidelity. And yeah. I think that we both agree that, um, you know, a lot of everything, all the conversations have focused on the sauciest and sexiest part of the book. But I thought I would just, just read a small section just to, so you can have a sense of the writing. And um, I have to explain that um, the most substantial affair my husband had was with a woman I've chosen to name the Countess, um, drawing on um, Anna Karenina, where Count Vronsky, of course, is the, uh, is, the, is the philanderer. He sweated through heavy gym workouts. Preoccupation with tummy flatness and muscular brawn was a warning sign I let slide. One morning, I sat down at our home computer. He'd forgotten to log off in his rush to get to a spin class. Her email address burned holes in my retina. The air sucked from my lungs and I heard the roar of blood and pounding heart as I clicked on a thread of exchanges with the Countess. Reading their private vernacular, sprinkled with in-jokes, caressed by eroticism, was like catching them naked, cavorting in a hidden cove. The whitewashed version he'd given me years earlier had been kinder to my imagination. I realised the Countess had competition, for he was courting another woman who I didn't recognise, a Spanish-speaking mayor he'd met at a conference in Mexico. He denied everything. That night, I burgled his phone to fathom the dimensions of his betrayal. I went bonkers. I punched myself again and again with my fists. Days later, I slipped off my shirt in front of the fluorescent lit mirrors of the restroom in the newspaper office where I probed other people's conflicts and conundrums. Bruises coloured the skin beneath my collarbone like a posy of purple and yellow-faced pansies inked into my flesh. In ancient times, Women who lost their husbands scarred their chests in a ritual of self-harm. 
Grief scores us in strange ways. I'd punished myself for being blind and dumb and deaf. I was horrified by my handiwork, but also weirdly proud of this vivid tattoo. Here was physical proof of my discombobulation. I'd lost my balance and my bearings like the guests at an Israeli wedding who were happily dancing when the floor collapsed under them in clouds of rubble and dust and harrowing screams. That's, that's... <laughs> I think that was in order not to murder my husband. <laughs> As I say, the only domestic violence in this book is that which I committed upon myself. <laughs> so, so, Kate, many of us have been um, on the receiving end of infidelity. Some of us in this room may well have been the bad guy or the bad girl in such a scenario. Um, However, I imagine that you discovering um, that your husband had been unfaithful to you uh, in a long marriage um, was particularly painful. It's not sort of like, you know, dating someone for just a few months and finding out that they're doing the dirty on you. It's actually, you know, a marriage and children, it's a particular type of pain, I imagine. So um, could you talk about, like you've already talked about how you inflicted, I mean, that when I read that in the book, I found that horrific that you were punching yourself. Mm, mm. Um, could you talk about what else you did on discovery of, of this affair and what it was like for you and multiple affairs? Actually. Well, God, it, was a, it went on for a long time, yeah. actually, the process of discovery and then having to come to terms with it and learning to live with it. And, um, you know, like any grief, you go through a number of stages of, um, of horror, I think, and I drank a lot and I smoked too much and I listened to some really sad songs over and over again <laughs> and and I didn't in the first instance I didn't share it with a lot of people because I just wanted to keep it to myself because we had a year a son who was going into year 12 and I just I didn't want to sabotage his prospects at um at success so I, when I first found out about the infidelity I say I got into my car and drove around the neighborhood you know thinking where could I land with my stinking trouble um, and I then decided just to come home and hold it tight and get on with life, which we did for a while until I stumbled across in that reading, the, again, that the, the affair had recommenced and that there was evidence of other, other affairs going on at the same time. But, um, you know, people to give you advice as to what to do, to leave, to, you know, pack up everything up, pack up the kids, pack up the passport and, and go and flee. And I didn't want to do that because at the time, you know, my, my mother had died when I was 23 and this was my family and this was my anchor and these were my pillars, all the people in this household. And I, I wanted to hold on to them and for as long as I can. And so we really did try to, to salvage the marriage. And it was only in the writing of the book, actually, that I, I looked at, you know, the therapist who, who uh, Esther Perel, who wrote Rethinking Affairs, The State of Infidelity, or Dan Savage. And they talk about not looking at, at the affair in terms of the victim and the perpetrator, that it's what one person did to one and what it meant to the other. And so a much more nuanced approach. And Dan Savage, who describes himself as gay, married and monogamish, he says that, you know, people promise not to stray, but sometimes they do. And if they do, it shouldn't be the end of everything, that, that you should hold on to the good things in the relationship. And so that's what I tried to do um, in learning to live with what had happened. I didn't and, – and it's funny because going around on these talks and talking to people, I feel often people are disappointed that there wasn't more revenge. <laughs> people want blood and, you know, and that's what you want to do, of course, at the first time you discover it. You just want to slice every limb off their body and have their gizzards spilling out the floor and, you know, no end of bloodshed would be enough. But, you know, it, 
Life is much more complicated and, and nuanced than that. Your brother actually says at one point that you're too forgiving. Too forgiving, yeah. Yeah, and I can imagine having the ear of a family member, of the, someone in your ear who's a family member saying that. You'd really take that on board. And because my, I'm one of those friends who has said to people who, um, couples I know where there's been infidelity, I'm the person who, who has said, get Please. out. Yeah. 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 So what was it like with your brother telling you that? Well, it's just another voice that you that you take into the mix, I think. And um, you know, he still feels that I think that I'm I'm was too generous to my husband. But you know, we've all regrouped, and I've forgiven everyone in this drama. Yeah, I know it's remarkable. And um, uh, you know, and in the revenge, I did I did commit a little revenge. You did. I did after I found those emails to the um, to the Spanish mayor and, and to the countess. I realised after talking to a friend that they'd been sent an hour apart. So I just sent them both. With the click of a key, I sent them both copies of the emails that he'd sent to the other women. (laughs) 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 Because people who think, you know, as if a man who's deceived his wife is not capable of deceiving his mistress, which of course he was. (laughs) So I didn't do anything, but there are some lovely stories about revenge that you hear. Recently I heard about the woman who smashed her husband's Wedgwood cornucopia collection, which was worth thousands of dollars. And then there was the woman who, uh, who cleaned the toilet with her husband's toothbrush. When he came home, she sat there and watched him cleaning his teeth. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the Bobbit, you know, the famous Bobbit story where he cut off the penis. She cut off his penis. Yeah. Um, You characterised the other woman's betrayal, who was your best friend. Yes. yes, You you, you characterised that as more hurtful than your husband's deception. Why is that? Well, I think if it's a stranger, it's so much easier to to, uh, accept if they've had an affair with someone that you don't know. But this was someone who had been a guest at our table and she was a very close friend and we'd only been away several weeks before on a holiday together with the kids. So uh, I, And I felt that she didn't have a... I felt my husband had a log of claims and grievances that, you know, he, he'd collected over 30 years of marriage and that ours was a, was a lovely friendship with this girlfriend who I had just met on returning to Melbourne and I was I was just blown away that she could sit there and talk to me as a confidant and um, and yet here she was harbouring this extraordinary secret. And I say to people when they ask, did she know that the book was coming out? And I say, well, no, she didn't. And she'd probably get a bit of a surprise, but nothing like the surprise I got when I discovered that she was... <laughs> in bed with my husband. Uh, but I have forgiven her and, look, she was... Look, she, the reason why I was attracted to her because she was so delightful and so in, yeah. infectious and her, her laughter, I, I even started to parrot it you know, myself before, um, before this happened. And she's the only person in the drama who I haven't actually re-associated uh, myself with. But I still hear from her husband from time to time yeah. and every time I see his name come up on my phone, I have a sort of slight shi- visceral shiver because he was always the one who rang with the uh, dirt. He was a much more superior sleuth to me despite 40 years in journalism and of course that was one of the sort of humiliations on my part that here were my employed to find out what goes on in other people's lives and yet you know the extraordinary thing was it just I was absolutely blown away when it happened as Helen Garner writes when she discovered um, that her husband was cheating on her it's like a blow from a baseball bat you know that shock momentary shock of suddenly discovering something and you have these sort of waves of post-traumatic stress because you have to reconcile what you thought was the truth with what you now know to have happened. And so that's a process that takes time in the process of, um, you know, recovery and rehabilitation. Is it easier or harder to know that he had multiple affairs as opposed to just one affair? Yeah, much easier. 
<laughs> yeah. Why is that? Well, because it means that it's not necessarily, uh, you know, that this is a p- part of his behaviour and that's what I wanted to explore because this is an intergenerational saga that crosses four generations of his family. And, of course, when I married him, the last thing I was thinking about was rifling through the, the family closet to see what else had happened. But our wedding was tricky because his mother... His father had just left his mother for another woman after a long-standing affair, and I knew that his grandmother had had an affair in Broken Hill when in in the 1930s. But these were things; these were skeletons, and they were ghosts in the past. And you know, you start out with all of the hope that anyone brings to a new relationship, and I never thought about the fact that this might be a seam of uh, that would be passed through from one family to the next. You know, we know with pathological conditions that there are genetic traits that predispose us to an illness or disease. And it was only after our son, the devilry leached into his conduct and his relationship and his engagement with the mother of his child, when that broke up, that was when I started to get serious about looking at, you know, what is the track record here? Because that's just what journalists do, of course. They're just fascinated trying to understand and explain behaviours. And so that was when I started looking at the research, which um, there were two really significant pieces of research, one which shows, and it's not rocket science, you know, Families are ground zero, aren't they? That's where we learn so much about life, about conflict resolution, about education, political allegiances, so much we soak up from that blacksmith's forge where this where this white metal is melted into shape and the our characters are born. And so I wanted to um, I wanted to go back and look at and try and understand and see whether or not each transgression was the result of a singular spiral of passion between two individuals freed from the hair shirt of compromise, or was this something, this pursuit of this particular happiness, was that modelled on behaviour that they had witnessed at home, or were they born with a genetic imprint that made monogamy a suffocating fit? So that was what I wanted to look at and going through from my husband's grandmother in Broken Hill where she was the breadwinner in the family and she felt emboldened, I think, to have the affair because she wasn't dependent on the husband for anything beyond, um, you know, everything that a couple bring in a family. And then his mother and, and, um, and her and his father, and then our situation, and then our sons. And, and so, you know, it, it, that was the way for me of healing, of understanding, of forgiveness and acceptance, because all those things are so important, really, um, to life. And that's the approach I've taken. Mm. It's my solution. It's not going to be everybody's solution, but it's certainly made me um, come to terms with what's happened. And you know, life is about the richness, both the good and the bad, you know, the horrible, the messy and the bumpy. And I think that that, you know, it all of these things bring you closer to the world, closer to that, to that, that those rich veins of human experience. And so that's, that's the way in which I've chosen to look at it. Well, I'd never considered until I read your book about how it could be learned behaviour, the fact mm. that if a relationship isn't going well then infidelity is a way to uh, satisfy needs that aren't being met within that relationship and that this could be learned behaviour passed from one generation to another. Um, So because um, your husband's um, father 
was shocked that his own mother was yeah. having an affair and yet he went on to repeat that behaviour. And same with, I imagine your son was shocked. Same with that, that was the son. So there's this element of shock mm. at that, you know, the parent is behaving this way and then the child going on to repeat that They behavior. become inured to the idea, I think, yeah. partly. But it, look, we're not prisoners of our own biology and that's what I always say and these studies show correlation only. They don't show cause and effect. And I have two children and one of them is very faithful and, and the other one is not. And there are... That was the other fascinating thing in, in looking at the four different stories, looking at the character traits of the of the people who had the affairs, you know, and there 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 were similarities there. There was, you know, a deep insecurity shielded by this intense sociable aspect to their personalities, as well as an engine of determination, so that nothing would ever derail their pursuit of their needs and goals. Um, you know, an extraordinary fashion sense and a sort of acute awareness of what they wore, clothes and and um, and 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 shoes and accessories. They like the flashy they stuff. They like the flashy stuff, and but also generous and profligate at the same time. And so, you know, perhaps an unrestrained desire for self gratification is also at the bottom of of this sort of behaviour. But it's um, you know, it's a fascinating riddle. And we, as you said before, I mean, this is something that is. I'm sure there are people in this room who are having affairs or they've had affairs. When we were working in Canberra as journalists, there were affairs happening under every desk, behind every door, from the parliamentary press gallery right up to the Prime Minister's office. No one ever wrote about it. It was considered, you know, off limits at that point in time because that has only become a test, test of character really in the last 20 years. So, you know, nobody wrote about it and it's always been covered with secrecy and shame or it's been dealt with in a literary sense. So if you think of the great um, literature from Anna Karenina to Madame Bovary to The Awakening by Kate Chopin, right up until um, Sally Rooney's Conversations with Friends, you know, it's, people are much more comfortable dealing with it in a, in a fictional sense. And, and certainly doing the political beat, which you did for so many years as a journalist, what do you think shifted in terms of um, parliamentary behaviour? Like you say that you think it shifted, say, 20 years ago. Oh, no, I think that we started to look at it as a test of character it, yeah. 20 years ago. So Clinton's um, affair yeah. with Monica Lewinsky and the women who stepped out of the shadows of that political campaign to say they'd had affairs with him, that m turned it into an issue. And now you look at Alan Tudge and Barnaby Joyce and, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos. I mean, it doesn't matter where you look, you know, you can you can find evidence. Well, it's of been an exposed now. Yeah, it's been opposed, exposed. I mean, now. Bob Hawke was protected for years, for years, for years, and yet he even cheated on. On and again, he was one of those men. You know, they're hard dogs to keep on the porch, and <laughs> and he. And because people like these characters, that's the other thing. Of course, it wasn't a negative for Clinton in the election campaign and Hillary stayed with him, which I admire very much because it seems she made the decision for the best of reasons, is that she always loved coming home to him at night and there was no one she wanted to talk to more than him. Um, Hawke, obviously, of course, but he left Hazel. Um, and But but didn't spoil their um, attraction to the electorate. The electorate, in fact, quite liked that sort of idea of a sexy man who's attractive to lots of women. And um, and so he was, yes, he, he was, Bob was still at it, even Absolutely. in... Absolutely. And I can see a link between um, Clinton and uh, Hillary and uh, Bob and Blanche and you and your ex-husband because the three women that we're talking about, Hillary Clinton, um, Blanche Del Puget and yourself, 
What unites the three of you is that you talk about how, you write about how this is the man who at the end of the day you want to have a conversation Mm. with. You couldn't imagine a finer conversationalist and companion through life Mm. and that's what keeps you there Mm. as a, you know, and that's what I guess in case of all three of you um, allows you to psychologically push aside their failures. Mm. Mm. It Mm. just seemed, struck me as Mm. that's sort of a link that the three of you have. Yes. Um, and I, I've always been a bit of an oversharer too, although, <laughs> you know, because that's the nature of, of me in terms of being honest about all of this. And I guess that's what I wanted to do in talking about it and bringing it out of the shadows um, and to give what is a universal experience, you know, the, the voice of authenticity um, in exploring what happens in these because there's you know there there's the guilt there's the you know the the distrust there's this neurotic sleuthing there's the hyper um vigilance that comes from having discovered that your partner is having an affair um and the you know it, it is a, it is a torrid journey and I wouldn't wish it on anybody really but if you can come out at the end of it with a greater sense of understanding then I think and writing the book has been a healing process and he was my husband was very supportive of that even though he would much rather of course that I had kept it in the fictional realm and um, I still remember him coming to the house one day and I told him that I'd been thinking of doing it as a non-fiction collection of essays and there was a very 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 long and awkward pause <laughs> and you're still in touch like you they speak every day every day several times a day I think that's just because our lives are so chaotic and crazy but yeah we do and he is a very good friend um and he came up with the title for the book and you know he's I say to people he's a he's a a student of history and a journalist at heart and he married a woman for whom everything is copy so I think he he understood that that (laughs) the contract the fine print in the contract um I also wanted to uh commend your son and your ex-daughter-in-law on being really brave mm. in talking in allowing you to to to, to write about yes. their experience because he's much younger yes and and so is she yes. you know so and can I you have, talk about them well, I, being I can vulnerable? because I have kept some of the details out of that chapter apart from the fact that that was what broke up their their relationship she has written about it she's a journalist herself and she's written quite extensively like the blow by blow description of what happened to them and that's why I felt in some ways you know she had had her say and that I would try and do a version of what happened to them that would have to be read by both of them and they would have to agree to the publication of it which they did and uh, you know it's been helpful for everybody who was involved in this drama because when you when you're standing by the side of the road getting sprayed by the gravel you know it's hard to sort of understand it but I think in writing about it not only have we all the participants have understood more about what happened but he has understood more about what's happened as well and um, he's a bit of an oversharer too and uh, he was very happy I mean to, to um, for me to write about it um, early on the Australian story wanted to do an episode on us and we decided that was just way too intrusive when I told my son he said oh why not <laughs> oh my God. And recently we were up, he was up in Byron Bay and he, um, there was a whole page ad taken out in the Byron Bay Echo saying, Dear Mark, the whole town knows you're a dirty, miserable cheat. Um, I hope she makes you happy. And my son sent me a text and said, I'm glad you took the uh, killing him slowly approach with the book <laughs> instead of putting an ad in the paper. 
Well, there is a chance that you might um, this might be adapted for screen. You were telling me yes, earlier. Yes, that's right. That Could you might talk be, a bit that about might that? Be, well, it's just at the very early early stages, and I haven't yet I haven't told the rest of the family. But so, and they would dramatise it and fictionalise it. But you know, again, it goes to that that whole. And we are a family of talkers because we're both journalists, and our son worked in journalism briefly, and so we get everything off our chest. And I do think that um, I read this beautiful quote recently by Sarah Krasnostein, who's writing I Love, and she was reviewing succession in the Saturday papers and she said what is denied will not be healed and what goes unexamined will be repeated and I think that is so important and that is the ethos of why people write stories and why people tackle difficult subjects and why people interview them again and again and again to extract every bit of wisdom they can and there is a part of that process is is healing and it's and it's important, I think, because otherwise nobody talks about it. It's just that is hidden. a great quote. Mm. Um, so, so could you talk about um, writing something so personal and trying to keep that journalist eye, that you know, eye for detail, and and sort of you know, I guess that clinical sort of removal. Mm. So you're writing something very intimate, but as a journalist with all that training, you're also approaching it from in a methodical way, in a sort of um, you know, in a cold and clinical way in some respects. How do you sort of straddle that and negotiate that when you're writing? Well, that I for some of the chapters, for example, the chapter on Broken Hill, because all the participants in that story have died. Um, so we, I went back to Broken Hill. We have visited it before because that's where my, my, my husband's family came from originally. And um, to get a sense of the, of the colour, I read through um, the, all of the newspaper articles I could find from Trove, which talked about um, pe- people. They actually ran a hotel called I- in I- a place called Iduna Park, which has completely vanished. I don't know whether any of you have been out to Broken Hill, but it's just nothing prospers or thrives there. The sand just blows it away. And so I went back there to get a sense of that country and her house where they lived. I talked to the one surviving sibling who was still alive about what had happened in that family because, of course, once my husband's father had, you know, thrown the Molotov cocktail into the family by announcing to them all that the mother was having an affair, the father thrashed him and then kicked him out of home at 14. And he didn't go back for 20 years. And so they just closed the door on what had happened. There was no need for anybody to talk about it again. It was a dead issue. As far as they were concerned, the parents went on living together, as I say, growing closer apart as they did. And so I needed to really use a lot of imaginative powers in painting that story. And so it's probably one of the most, it's got got the strongest fictional treatment in the book. And then the experience of his mother and father, because as you said before, the son who was most upset goes on to repeat the very same thing, having a flat in St Kilda where he lived with the woman who he'd met um, at work for 10 years during the week and then would go home on the weekend. And my husband's mother never knew about that until he left her. And one of the um, one of the other beautiful parts of this story, because, of course, that's what also attracted to me as a storyteller, were the bones of this story. So after my husband's father had left, married, set up house in Morris, had a fling, you know, fallen in love with this other woman, his own mother died in Broken Hill and she left him a box 
that arrived posthumously and he opened the box and inside the box was a note that said, Colin, because that was his name, I always loved Roy. So Roy was the lodger who she'd had the affair with. And so it was this terrible admission. And as my husband's father was telling him this story, he had tears, you know, streaming down his face. And we've often debated that. Was it cruel for her to say that because she ends up having the last word in this story? Or did it, as I think, precipitate him towards leaving because he could see that he wanted a chance at happiness too. He wanted a chance at love. And, of course, as a 14-year-old observer of what was happening in his parents' home, you know, memory is an unreliable magnifier. And, of course, he was too young then to understand the consequences of a long marriage and the compromises that are made and the nature of love. So yeah, I'm still in two minds about whether that was a gift or a, a sort of punishment yes. beyond the grave because on the one hand she's saying I did love this person I had the yeah. affair with um, and and to me it's sort of so you know it wasn't just any kind of fling. It was actually based on mm, love. Love, and that's right. as an adult I imagine Colin might think, well, it wasn't just a fling then. It actually this it was, was love and it was purposeful and meant something yeah, and therefore I'm going something. to leave and 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 make sure that I have yeah. the same chance at that. You know, because that's also what I've tried to understand in looking at affairs. I mean, I've never had one myself, so <laughs> I have to read about them and do some research. And you know, they're extraordinary. you know, the the, the the chance that people take where a, a you know a sultry glance can become a stolen kiss or a salacious aside can tip into a full-blown affair. Uh, because there was a chance, a rare chance at excitement and intimacy, you know, the, to, to, to lift you, loft you out above the sort of the, the death the every day. and the every day, <laughs> the dripping tap and the flies circling the dirty dishes in the sink. So it is this extraordinary, um, you know, leap into another world, into another sphere. And I see, I say... You're almost selling it to us, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can understand it. And again, it brings you closer to the world. It's another journey, that you, another road you can travel. And uh, I mean, I say that uh, uh, you know, passion is purple and mythical and propriety is pallid and prim. And I'm pallid and prim and dull. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, may, you do feel a sort of lesser sense of self as a result of the fact that you haven't, you know, stolen that moment and gone with it. Because I was always too concerned about what collateral damage might be caused as a result. And I can only blame my grandmother for her Presbyterian wholesomeness. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I really love about the book is uh, Kate talks about um, hooking up with another person. Once the relationship with your um, ex-husband is um, over, you're still married actually. Yes, you're married. The relationship for all um, intents and purposes is over and you – start going out with someone who is the complete opposite of him. And I'm a big fan of when people take very unexpected um, choices and chances. So could you talk about how he was completely different and how maybe that was very attractive to you? Yes. Well, uh, my husband is very Mr Lux. He loves um, to have a concierge, whether he's skiing or horse riding. (laughs) Um, And... You know, he, he, as I said before, he's got this great sense of style and taste and, you know, he always used to buy my clothes, actually, and someone said, my God, that's so controlling. But no, it's not. I hate shopping. And it was fantastic to have someone else do that for me. 
But this man is somebody who drives a second-hand Subaru with the, with the um, side mirrors gaffer taped on for the car, who can't, can't drive past a hard rubbish collection without filling up the boot with wood that he can then use in his potbelly stove. You know, my husband used to say when we had a dog together, it's only a dog, it doesn't need to be walked. Well, my my partner, new partner, the dog is the centre of his life. And when I was walking the dog recently down at the park, a woman said to me, that man, he loves his dog. And I said, yeah, I know. I wish he loved me as much. And she said, people are so much more difficult to love. <laughs> I thought, yeah, ain't that the truth? But he, so he's just a completely different human soul and it hasn't been perfect and, and um, you know, I had to laugh at the way things turned because, you know, one of my husband's complaints was that we was never enough sex in the marriage and he used to buy me all these books, you know, the sex staff marriage, the passionate marriage, too good to leave, too bad to stay and I just put them into the self-help book on the, in the library because I thought I'm not reading those and you need a crash course in honesty before I'm going to read those books. And this man is, because he's slightly autistic, he's, he's very erudite and I love that about him um, and that he is an English literature teacher and he's passionate about language and words but he's got holes in the back of his house so it's freezing cold in winter and, you know, it, it, it would give my husband a heart attack if he looked inside this man's fridge, definitely. But he is completely different and he was the man who introduced me to the poem, the W.B. Yeats poem, which was the way in which I could conceive of doing a book with one half looking at the theme of infidelity in his own family and the second half looking at the role of mental illness in my own family because we have a, a river of mental illness running through my family. And this, I'm going to, I'm going to say, quote the last um, verse of this poem because poets are having their moment and poets are the Olympians of language. And this was a poem that W.B. Yeats wrote towards the end of his life when he was looking to understand the sources of his muses which had gone. And he wrote, and this is how, it was like dislodging a fishbone from my throat. When I read this, I could see how I could knit these two halves together. These masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began, a mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street, old bottles, old kettles and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder is gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart." And so the foul rag and bone shop of the heart became for me because I've always been as interested in the darker side of love and caring as I have been in its joy and wonder. And so that gave me a sort of metaphor for how I could write about all of the things in my own family that have the curses and the and the depression that have tripped up various relatives over a period of 30 or 40 years and are still causing grief in our family and then to look at how this baton of infidelity was passed from one to the next to the next to the next because as you get older you are so much more interested in finding out you know the mysterious alchemy of how we become who we are and I think that I didn't go on this search either until I was in my early 60s 
And I have a lot of, you know, as you get older, you have a lot of disinhibition. You're, you're less concerned about what other people think of you. You're almost ready to strip off in public. And because I was writing this in lockdown, where we had, as we all know, we were in the longest lockdown of any city in the world, there was this sense of solitude and solace. And that's when I went looking into the filing cabinet that had been left by my father with all the papers relating to our family and went through them in an effort to try and understand my own mother who was a very tortured soul and to also understand my brother who is intellectually disabled and who I look after now with my with my elder brother and in an attempt to understand this mystery, you know, what is it? Is it circumstances? Is it temperament? What are the threads of kinship? How do they plait? How do they make us who we are? And it's a riddle, I think, that becomes, you know, when you're young, all you're concerned about is forging your own path through life. But when you become older and you've seen cohorts of children grow up and you are, I think, a lot wiser um, about how it all comes together. So so what came first, becoming a detective in your husband's family or your own family? Or was it sort of concurrent? So almost concurrent. So becoming uh, – I left work in 2019 with the purpose of writing about the infidelity. And then my brother had come to me and said that he, he had been told by our uncle that when I was two years old, my mother had – our mother had thrown me against a wall. She was always a very volatile character. Um, you know, incredibly emotional and um, often, uh, you know, threats of suicide and and it was a, it was a very rough house to grow up in. But I was fascinated in finding out how had we changed her just as surely as she had warped us, you know, because she was a very intelligent woman who'd grown up equally as well educated as my father, who was a founding professor of Asian history at Monash University, and yet she'd been housebound with a with a, with a difficult disabled child at a time when there was no support, you know, no one wanted to have anything to do with our family because Colin, my brother was so difficult. And so I was interested in finding out. Had she always been like that or was that something that happened as a result of circumstances and that, that, that she had had to deal with? And that was the, so I went on that search because I had a very um, robust argument with my brother because I often think men don't understand mothers because they aren't mothers and I knew myself and I have sure I have done things to my own children that they haven't accused me of yet but they will. <laughs> Because that's what we do. We go searching in a way I, I think and I worry that societies have become less forgiving as we seek to lay blame for ourselves, you know, that we're so sort of driven on now on this search for self on as long as we're happy, it doesn't matter about anyone else, and, and that we've become less understanding and less forgiving. And I felt that he was misrepresenting her. He was convinced that he wanted to diagnose her with borderline personality disorder, which I suspect she probably had and would be diagnosed in this day and age, but wasn't then. And so that, so that was the search I was undertaking. Upstairs, I was working on, on Broken Hill and trying to understand this story and then I would go into the garage, which we used to call the crack den, because my uh, of the graffiti that was all over it, done at the courtesy, by the courtesy of my uh, one of our children, and we'd go out there for sly cigarettes during family gatherings. So my brother called it the crack den and that's where I sat. It's cold on the south side of our house and I was just surrounded by papers and folders and documents because my father kept everything from 1942 utility bills to the philosophy exam he sat 
at university when he was a student. So there was a lot of chucking out, a lot of chucking out, but there was also a lot of understanding. So in terms of that understanding, could you talk about um, how you came, because you were young when your mother died, could you talk about how your image and your conception of her changed through this sort of discovery process as opposed to what your conception of her was when she passed away? Well, I I say when she passed away, I had this sort of almost secret guilty flicker of relief because I knew we'd all be free of the emotional volatility and her great unhappiness and her anger, which all would always brew. But when I I read my father had written a personal account, he never very rarely waded into the emotional terrain of family because he was an archivist and an academic and he preferred to stay on the side of facts. And I found his own recollections about what an uneasy, easy, disquiet soul she was. And that even though he felt too this, this, this relief, he also felt great desolation at losing her. And reading through her letters, I mean, some of her letters where she spoke about what it was like for us as a family. Um, and I know that she had to deal with the worst of it because I was young and at home while, you know, my, our fa- father went off to work. Um, I've got to find this 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 section where she spoke about, um, um, you know, she said to my father, who was at an international conference having a whale of a time, you know, dealing with international papers and issues of debate, and she said, um, uh, we've, there's been a heat wave in Melbourne and we've been down to the baths. Um, I've taken the children down to the baths. Is it... Et- is it any wonder, is it to wonder any child wants to come to our house? She wrote of her youngest son's antisocial antics. He has been punching children down at the baths again, total strangers. I dare not let him out of my sight. And that was a hard, very hard time for her. And one of the things she instilled in me before she died was the importance of a career. And I really thank her for that because when everything else goes belly up, you know, you've got to have something to do. It doesn't matter if it's bringing up children or a career. I mean, I, you know, because people have choice now to do what they want, but something that gives you some feedback and a sense of purpose and a sense of satisfaction outside of the home where everything might be going um, to, to shit, mm. <laughs> basically. And she was, um, you know, she, uh, and in writing this, I, I took the panoramic view. That's what I say. I took the panoramic view. And I feel we were clothed, we were fed, we were educated to great expense. And she gave me enough love. She gave me enough love to make me love her back. And, you know, when I looked through the moments of our time together, you know, which, which you know, she died when I was 23. And so, so many of the conversations that you want to have with your mother you know, once you become an adult, I was unable to have. I mean, there's a beautiful line from Saul Bellow who says, losing a parent young is like driving through a plate glass window that you didn't know was there until it shatters and then you spend the years afterwards picking the shards out of your hair. And I think that is what losing a parent young or youngish can do. So I, I, what I, I fell in love with her over all over again, really, because I felt grateful for the things she'd given me, the, the, the decision to have a career and, um, and also some of the great gifts because she, she was a reader, an absolutely voracious reader. She introduced me to Sylvia Plath. She bought me the Helen Garner's Monkey Grip. You know, when the night before my year 12 English exam, we sat reading Robert Frost's poem Design. I mean, she had a great mind and a great intellect and I, I'm grateful for those things that she gave me ultimately. And then, you know, we're not perfect. No one's perfect. Mothers aren't perfect. Partners aren't perfect. We're all hewn from crooked timber. And I guess it's it's making peace with that. Yeah. 
is a healthier state of being than, um, you know, ruminating, having that reek of regret and envy about what has happened to you in your life. Well, rumination is a killer, isn't it? And so is anger. And the fact that you actually found somewhere to park your anger is astonishing to me as, you know, these stories unfold in the book. We will go to questions from the audience very soon. But I did want to touch on the fact that you now, after living mainly your whole life with a lot of people around, you're actually living alone. And could you talk about that? And you did say something to me earlier about the particular hours where one might feel lonely. Someone else said that to me. (laughs) Between seven and nine at night. (laughs) (laughs) But otherwise, could you talk about living alone and the joy that you're finding in it? It's been a great surprise to me because I was always a very anxious, nervous child. I'd always look under my bed before I got onto it in case someone was hiding there. And it only took me... 40 years to work out that most of the people who are going to hurt you live very in close proximity to you and know you and the sort of idea of the ogre, the strange ogre stalking the pavements waiting to break into someone's house is a complete nonsense. So learning to live on my own, well, it's been a, yeah, it's been an eye-opener and I mean, sometimes I do feel we had a big family gathering on Sunday with everybody. We, we have a rule in the house that we don't have the blow-ins, so we just have keep the, the, the original members of the family at these events. And uh, everyone had gone and my husband was wheeling his suitcases out the door because he was going back to Sydney to sort of go away with his girlfriend. And I did have a, a little moment of, ooh. I'm on my own again. <laughs> but it was only five minutes and I, I, you know, we are, as one of my barrister friends said, we are all alone. We are alone, you know. I mean, we happen to rub up against other people and um, and uh, obviously, you know, society is, and, and social connect, connection and, and uh, community is so important. But, you know, we are essentially alone. And I guess I've loved, I've learned to love solitude. And that came from um, a beautiful phrase by the writer Helen MacDonald, who wrote that um, loneliness is cured by solitude. And I really found that during lockdown, you know, with the time that I spent on my own, it, it, it grew me a spine about being on my own. And I'm really happy on my own. I don't need necessarily, I mean, I need lots of contact with people, but I don't necessarily need someone farting in the bed next to me. <laughs> Um, and, and also, I should point out that this book is not just about um, the history of your family and your husband's family. There's a lot of uh, other essays in the book with it, meditations on grandmothering, grandmothering, um, connection to animals, um, being a uh, patrolling your local parks for rubbish and bad behaviour of um, pedestrians and things like that. Could you talk about, I guess, before we throw to questions, um, could you just talk about you know, getting more engaged in your community as because you're not um, working the regular beat yeah. as a journalist these days. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, com- and communities, and, you know, it is, is important. And parks, that's where I, it's the parks that I sort of, you know, patrol and love because I love walking. I love walking in nature and I've actually m- moved down to Blegari, um at the moment and I'm just the, the great, the um, Mornington National Park, Peninsula National Park is just stunning and that great Southern Ocean belting again the cliffs mm. and uh, you know it's it's uh, I wrote a book about my last book before this one was about the botanists who developed Cradle Mountain in Tasmania you know they they and they taught us really uh, Australians who were at that stage terrified of the bush to love everything about our flora and our fauna and our wild spaces and places. And, um, you know, nature is so restorative and we've read, you know, you read every day there's a new study out really which shows the, the health benefits that come from walking in nature, from breathing fresh air, from being away from the sort of 
toxic um, busyness of the city. And uh, it's it's that's how I've I've it's healed me enormously. And it was in the in after my husband left me in 2015, my um, youngest son took me to Cradle Mountain and and that was where I sort of discovered, rediscovered, I guess, my joy of, um, of walking in wilderness. And um, yeah, that's a great, it's a great place to be in. Yeah. I find getting older, um, I, I appreciate nature far more than I ever did. In, in the same way that I guess, as you touched on earlier, I appreciate my family tree a lot more. You know, when I was in my 20s, I did not want to know about the history of my family. It was just too, it was boring and possibly confronting, I suppose. That's right. And also you're too busy, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I, I felt when I was raising my children, trying to work, you know, trying to help out the school, trying to serve in the canteen, I often felt like I was in the spin cycle of a washing machine, you know, going round and round and round, doing four things at the same time, three of them poorly and remembering none of them. And <laughs> and I think that's the thing about growing old and, and, you know, this is when people fall in love with birds and bird life mm-hmm. and, and because you have the, the moment, the pause, you know, to watch it. And that's why Thackeray said um, it's only when you become a grandmother that you learn to become a mother because you've slowed down to the point where you can sit quite contentedly and watch some a little ch- a child, you know, playing with rocks or, you know, whatever. whatever. And, and this is why grandparents often get a better rap from grandchildren than they got from their own no children. children. Exactly. They're actually kind of like different people, really, in my experience anyway. Um, okay, we have Jamila with a microphone. If anyone would like to raise their hand and ask Kate um, any kind of question about the book or about mm. her writing career. Mm. Kate, I'm just a fabulous book. I've been listening to a podcast called Imperfect. And um, and that sort of ties in really well with your book because we all have skeletons in the closet and I think you're very brave coming forward. Just wondering how your boys reacted to your book. Well, yes, as I said, um, you know, I think... I don't know actually whether my eldest son has read it, partly because he just... He's a mathematician and he sort of doesn't really concentrate on what's happening around him. But my daughter-in-law, his wife, has read it and she was the one who found great sucker from the psychological objectivity that I brought to bear. And um, and my youngest, you know, this is the thing, it's really about getting it down in print. And as I said before, he was, he, you know, he, they, they seem to be fine and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have published it if it was, if anyone had objected to it, I wouldn't have published it. And um, my mother-in-law, who's still alive, she's 99, when um, I, I, I got her imprimatur, I, you know, she, I think she closed her eyes and held her nose and just decided to let it go because we get on very well together. Because when someone gave her a copy of Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, she turned to her daughter and said, I don't know why people have to talk about their private lives. <laughs> But where she is in the nursing home, I think only three other people know their name, so she's anonymous and, she, <laughs> and she's and she's still a, reads everything. And um, wow. I see her very often and um, we've become very close. And she was a great role model for me because she was on her own, you know, for 30 years because after her husband left her, she married and that man lasted for three years and he died of a massive heart attack. And mm. as she says, it's easier when they die than if they leave you. <laughs> But um, no, she and she made it very easy too, as a result, to sort of write about everything mm. in, that's happened in all of our lives. And um, you know, sometimes a family needs a chronicler to to come and do it. But as I say, I wouldn't have done it if they didn't um, approve of it. And I also showing it to everybody meant that it held my pen to the fire because it makes you honest, and it and it prevents you from um, exaggerating or distorting messages to 
serve your own purposes and and it stops you from curating the truth too much because there's always going to be your version, my version, and somewhere in between in that murky lane will be the truth. And, um, and I've tried to be as honest as possible in writing this and that's also one of the reasons for doing it as non-fiction rather than fiction, you know, because I wanted to, to be an honest as honest as, as as it could be, as close to the bone as it could be, you know. I wanted to tear out the the, the sinews and the flesh, and the and and the muscular elements of 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 these rogue couplings that the word affair doesn't even begin to encapsulate. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in order to do that, I had to dig underneath the surface and not just leave it all up to the imagination. Mm. Would anyone else like to raise their hand with a question? Is there anything that feels still feels sensitive? Um, well, there's some things that I left out of the book because, for example, the fact that um, my father-in-law had that flat in St Kilda for 10 years because we just didn't feel that um, Molly, who the book's dedicated to, my husband's mother, really needed any extra details and it would have really upset her, so she doesn't know that. Um, and I've kept a lot of the details out that involve my son and his fiance. I've really just given the bones of that because that's their story to tell. And I think my son probably will write something about it one day. I mean, everyone in this book would tell a different story to my story. And I'm encouraging my husband, who's writing a memoir to do with the disruption of the media company that he had to run, to do a chapter in response to this because it's been interesting for him. Um, and, he, and it was difficult in the first couple of weeks, particularly particularly with the, some of the reporting um, because of the um, – he, he was um, CEO of Fairfax and the Australian was partic- always been vicious towards him and was particularly vicious in its reporting of this book. So it was difficult initially and he had to tell the boards that he's on um, that it was coming out because, you know, in case there was, there was a sort of shock horror reaction and he only lost one appointment because it was a very conservative board and although they had a split decision as to whether or not he should leave, it would be, he decided it was much better to, 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 to sign off. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really been the main difficulty. And I do worry about the, um, you know, I do, I do worry about the long-term consequences of it, it, hoping that it won't, um, you know, be an issue for any of the children. But, I mean, I, I think as honesty has always been my best policy, I think, and because it's out there and it's transparent um, and then it's really, it's only when I think it, it festers in the darkness that it becomes a problem. You know, it needs oxygen, it needs oxygen, it needs to be spoken about. And, um, you know, hopefully that'll lead to them all having better relationships. And that's what I hope that people who, young people who read the book, because I never got any advice when I got married. I didn't, no one told me a single thing. And, you know, I think sometimes we spend, we have more due diligence on buying white goods and electric vehicles than we do in choosing the person that we marry. And so I've tried to, to what little wisdom I have, I've tried to pass on so that, um, you know, people who, when they're thinking of getting married, you know, maybe do look at the family. <laughs> you know, just out of interest's sake and, and just familiarise yourselves and talk about those sorts of issues and talk about infidelity. Talk well, you, about what sort of rules, you know, you want to live with. There's no point three years into the marriage saying I want to have an open relationship. You've got to talk about it beforehand. And you are actually wary of your younger son getting married so young and have a yeah. ba- having a baby yeah. so young and obviously their marriage is now um, broken up. But you certainly imparted that wisdom to your son but he completely ignored you as the younger, yeah, you know, exactly. inclined to do. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And that's 
advice I, I probably do, although I didn't get any advice. My, the only advice I got was from my brother. He said, make sure you marry someone who can be a friend. And I guess that my, I succeeded. Yeah, that's what Elizabeth <laughs> you know, Gilbert always secured said. Very secure, it's hairpin, then root. But yeah. I did get there in the end. Yeah, well, I remember Elizabeth Gilbert saying, always marry your best friend. Don't marry the person that you lust after and yeah. long after. Don't marry, marry the best friend. Don't marry the bad poets on motorbikes. <laughs> um, any other questions? If you'd like to raise your hand over there. Um, so we hear a lot about shame these days. And I wondered if you could talk to that. Yeah. No, there was a terrible... Terrible shame and humiliation, real humiliation, because I felt like everyone knew except me. Um, you know, people who'd watched them at school together, at school pickups, you know, her laughing a little bit too loud, he just a little bit too close to her ear, but no one had said anything because it's a hell of a bomb to throw into someone's hallway if you don't, don't know for sure that it's happening. And so no one did. And it was also the lack of self-worth I had because after burgling the phone, that was I remembered this the other day, this is when the other elements of the story often suddenly dribble down. You suddenly think, oh, that, that moment. But when I burgled the phone, I had one of my, another of my girlfriends who had been talking to my husband, who is a, um, a psychologist and very interested in relationships. But the first message I found, his phone said, Katie's going to look in your phone, delete the messages from me. And so it's like, oh, my God, that was before I even got onto the other stuff. So I did have this – and I remember sitting in the toilet because that's where I'd taken the phone to read it. And I remember just thinking, my God, I've just got nobody. I'm just completely on my own here. And so that was devastating. Um, and But, you know, one of the advantages, I guess, of staying and trying to work it out and trying to um, be brave about it is that, um, you know, you do start to – scar tissue heals. And it is, it's a time thing. It's a time, 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 time is what heals you ultimately and also a little bit of a, a, a dose of falling in love with somebody else, you know, for a moment to distract you. But then again, that 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 ends up, uh, we didn't finish that conversation before, but here was someone who I desperately wanted to go to bed with who, because of the nature of his peculiarities, he didn't want to have too much, he wasn't a physically affectionate man. So I had to laugh, you know, I had to laugh and think, oh my God, talk about how the tables turn. Here I am now, completely understanding things from my husband's perspective in a funny sort of way, you know, and that's, I guess, you know, that's what's always driven me is that search for understanding. And as a journalist, you're so privileged to tour other people's lives and to hear their stories. And I wanted to um, unburden my soul just as I'd asked other people for 40 years to bear theirs. And so there was a, you know, there's a contract there I felt from my... I hope my you weren't giving your new partner those self-help books that your husband had no, given No, no, no. And he hasn't even, he hasn't even read this book, even though he knows he's in it, he has not read it. He has not read it. So it's a strange – he's a very strange character <laughs> is all I can say. Um, we had a hand up over here as well. From a therapy perspective, did you need to tell this story? I don't know. That's an interesting thought and maybe that's part of what pushed me to do it in a non-fiction way rather than a fiction way as, you know, we were all 
in lockdown trying to find a way forward. Um, and my husband says that he could see me healing in the process of writing about it. And it is an extraordinarily liberating thing to admit to it, to own up to your role in what's happened um, and also to recognise that you can't chain people to the fence, you know, that that um, that's perhaps the most liberating lesson I've had to learn is that you can't, um, you know, lock people inside, that if they love you, they will stay with you and, um, you know, that's probably the best love that you can give is freedom. There's a beautiful song by Leonard Cohen, The Famous Blue Raincoat. Do you know that? Oh, it's such a beautiful song. That's really written from the point of view of forgiveness, isn't it? You know, if you want to come by here, your enemy is sleeping, your woman is free. That's what he says. And um, I love that song, you know, for its, um, you know, the com- recognising the complexity of these things. He said, I, you took the trouble from her eyes. I thought it was there for good, so I never really tried. You know, and it's, it's, it's the unblinking honesty of writing, whether it's the lyrics or poetry or, you know, me- a memoir, you know, that, that you want to make people, you want to really make them almost viscerally uncomfortable, you want to startle them, you want to compel them to keep reading and I guess, you know, that's what you're trying to do and as a writer, you, you know, that's how you make sense of everything and you put one word in front of the other, in front of the other and I think as readers, that's what we want too, we want to understand our world through reading about other people and other people's experiences. And that's how I learnt too about forgiveness from some of the people I've interviewed in my journalism. So there was this wonderful woman who I met in Hobart whose husband had been an oceanographer, he'd worked for the Defence Department, he was a poet, he was all sorts of things. He died of dementia, she'd spent years nursing him, 12 years nursing him, he died and she went into the garage, because great things happen in garages, because she had to get rid of all the boxes of documents that he'd been he'd left behind and she hired a shredder and she sat there all day and at five o'clock towards the light was dimming she got to the very last box and in that box when she opened it on her own at five o'clock were all these letters to all of the women he'd been having an affair with for years and years and so she sat there all night she had nothing she didn't get dressed undressed she sat there she had a strong couple of strong scotches and then the next morning she sat down and she wrote a letter to the woman he'd had the most significant affair with to understand who this stranger was who'd lain beside her in the same bed to see more what she could learn more about him so that he didn't become a hated figure but someone who she could accept again and understand. That's extraordinary. We might have time just for one more quick question if anyone has one. Was there a particular time that you actually thought that you you forgave and let let go or was it over a longer period of time and how did you recognise that you had forgiveness for your husband? Well, it was over. It was over a period of time, definitely, and that's what I said before about the time, 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 and also, um, you know, meeting somebody again to distract you from that. And of course, because it is, it you know, falling in love is, you, and that's what, why the affairs happen because that, it, it colonizes your brain. <laughs> you know, you're in this completely other, other sphere, and I think that um, the forgiveness. We also had to come together because our youngest son whose relationship fell apart was in the thralls of addiction. So we had to put our big people pants on and manage that and that that really focused us. And one when um, with, the, the, with the grandchild too, you know, I, as a journalist I've just seen how damage begets damage and I really didn't want that to happen. I'm always so conscious of not letting the poison, you know, filter into the air that they breathe. Um, and so we had to look after the grandson and I, I really felt that it was good for him to know both of us 
not to go from one house to the next house. And so that was the welcoming home for my husband then and there. And then I think um, he has felt incredibly ashamed of his behaviour. I know he lies off still in bed at night, often in the fetal crouch, thinking, my God, what in the fuck was I thinking of? And um, and people often ask me, will he, it would be, is he faithful to the current girlfriend? Of course, I don't know. (laughs) I didn't know when he was being unfaithful to me. And isn't that what I opened the book with that quote, which was a quote from me about someone is always having an affair somewhere, usually right under the nose of their spouse because nobody knows what happens inside a marriage, not even the people in it, you know. And so, no, it, it was a long process. It was a long process uh, and, and many things helped because these events happened 10 years ago and that's one of the beauties about leaving them. That's one of the problems, I think, of Harry's memoir, Spare, is that it was written in the heat of the moment without letting go and stepping back and having some distance because it's just you need to have the light, not the heat. And the, and the emotions, and particularly for me, I always find the emotions just completely overwhelm me and so you need to, you know, just to keep on going next day the next day until finally they just start to dissipate and you can start to see in, in, in a clearer light um, you know what what has happened hey, make sense of it thanks so much for writing this book I found it um, so honest and so much to chew on and what a remarkable story you have and you know well done to your family for for for, for no just for letting you talk about their vulnerability as well um, please put your hands together for Kate thank you and thanks to Elizabeth. Thank you. Really Thank you. That was Elizabeth McCarthy in conversation with Kate Legg, recorded on Friday the 16th of June 2023 as part of Books and Ideas at Montalto. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.